Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. So instead of asking us where the YouTube is located, where the Patreon is located, where the merchandise is located, you can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, in addition to the existing Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes, we're also giving people invites to the new voice social media networking club, Clubhouse. So right now it's closed off, it's in beta testing, you have to be an iPhone member, but if you join Patreon and through Patreon join the Discord, you will be able to get uh, Clubhouse invites. And the reason why we want people to get those Clubhouse invites is because we're doing a lot of stuff with the creators and the podcast fans, and you need to get invited to take part of that, including a new weekly creator and fans show that we've started over there where you get to interact with us and with each other so definitely become a patron for five dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and without further ado here is the episode take care hey so we have um with us a guest to talk about a very pertinent topic that's happening right now this is uh trevor you can find me on we can find the show on twitter at champagne sharks you can find me personally at ricky rawls r-i-c-k-y-r-a-w-l-s without further ado i'd like to introduce richard cook if you wouldn't mind telling us who you are what you do where to find you and your latest article that's a mouthful hi trevor how are you going um so i'm a former foreign correspondent who was stationed in the u.s um I wrote a book off the back of that called Tired of Winning about um, my reporting there. And uh, I've written for people like the New York Times and Washington Post since. Um, I'm just about to start on a cultural history of Wikipedia, uh, which is called Hello World. And I just wrote an article for the New Republic called The Perpetual Disappointment of Remote Work. Pleased to be here. Um, what brought this? Oh, do you tell people where to find you? I don't know if you shared your your contact information. Yeah, some people I'm, like to follow. I'm follow on the on uh, on Twitter as as RG Cook. That's C W O K E. Um, so I'll see you there. Okay, great. Um, what made you? I mean, besides the fact that it's a very timely topic, was this a topic that already um kind of consumed you? You were thinking about, or was it strictly born out of the COVID crisis? Yeah, I mean, I I had sort of worked from home for years before before COVID hit, not all the time, but most of the time. And I read a little bit about remote work and it seemed to be full, these these pieces and sometimes books were full of people singing the praises of, of remote work and saying how efficient and great it was and how happy it made workers, but it was still really, really rare. You know, I would go out in the middle of the day and be kind of the only person like me around. And I started to wonder why it was so rare and why technology hadn't resulted in more people working from home as had been anticipated. And when COVID kind of forced a lot of people um, into at-home work, I started to, to look at that transition and it was quite different from what I'd expected. And what did you expect um, back when you were one of the only ones uh, doing it, I'm sure, compared to a lot of your friends and family? Like, what did you expect that would happen when people joined you on the other side of the 
of the divide versus what actually did happen? Yeah, so I, I guess what I had always thought and, and what many other people thought as well was that work from home would be led by technology as video calls got good, um, a, as you were able to sort of log in and communicate with your colleagues in real time on things like Slack, um, that would mean that there was less and less reason for people to go to a to an office. And really, the history of remote work and the, the history of technology don't intersect that much. And instead, what's determinative is all these social and political and economic pressures about what work and what going to work means. Um, and I kind of experienced that you saw people feeling these pressures or the absence of these pressures uh, in a new way for the first time. I think remote work kind of has been creeping into our lives since the advent of the BlackBerry and the home email. But what it's kind of been has been like a supplement regular work. So it's like now, in addition to having your regular office hours reachable by your boss after work and sometimes even before work, I've worked at jobs where it's like um, I've gotten calls in the morning about things or, you know, like somebody comes in and wants to know where something was. So it's, um yeah, so it's kind of weird. And you kind of talk about it in this article that um, the technology never creates more leisure time. It just, whether it's from the work of housewives to the work of office workers, the technology just finds more ways to, A, cram more duties and expectations within a certain amount of time and also extends the reach of where you're expected to be contacted. So it ends up extending uh, the workday as well. It's been like a weird paradox. Yeah, 100%. It, there's almost, uh, you're right that that technology did sort of push that work into the home, but it just did it at times when people weren't being paid for it. And when they yep. would previously had been having leisure time or going to bowling leagues or doing the sort of social activities um, that used to maybe create a bit more community fabric. And you know something that is really disappointing with this stuff, uh, this current shift is I always thought work from home was going to be um, great, right? Like, um, like the people I work for have had me uh, working from home and stuff. But what's been making it such a disappointment in a lot of ways is that I thought, oh, work from home, I could do a lot of different things. I can um, take a lunch break and go to my neighborhood cafe and then sit down in my neighborhood cafe and just, uh, you know, spend an hour, you know, shooting the breeze or go back to work. And then um, when I hit like quitting time, you know, five or six, I'll go down to the local bar and, you know, hang out with my friends. But being that's been in the pandemic, it's been nothing like that. It's just work at home and then just sit home, quarantine after. So it's just been this weird lack of differentiation. I don't know how it is where, where you are uh, as far as the level of um, lockdown and whatever, if you guys experiencing that. But basically, in the beginning days of the quarantine, it was just like there was no division between really anything. And since there was no place to go, it affected how I was working from home because I'm like, okay, there's no real fire being lit under me to, you know, start at a certain time and end at a certain time since I'm home all the time anyway. So I would take like long, you know, TV breaks in the middle of the day, record a podcast, end up going back to work and finishing my work at like eight, nine. My my schedule was getting horrible. I was losing all forms of self-regulation. It was, um, I mean, I don't know. It, it, it was not really everything that I, um, thought it was. I don't know if there was still a social sphere open around me, if it would have been better because it would have been easier to kind of structure my day or have a change of scenery. You know what I mean? But yeah, that hasn't been the case. 
Yeah, I mean, even pre-pandemic, um, my experience of, of kind of going to a coffee shop at lunchtime or even sometimes a bar after work is that those places could be full of people on laptops sitting there in silence doing work. That, that's less true of the bar than the coffee shop, um, but you definitely notice that that creep happening at both ends. Um, yeah. That, that that kind of bleed between work and leisure, which is usually won by work, isn't just happening at home. It's kind of happening everywhere that it can happen. You know, I'm old enough that I can remember when coffee shops, well, they weren't as plentiful as they are now, but like when I was in college and stuff uh, in the 90s, I, I'm old enough to remember when uh, when you did have a coffee shop, that's what coffee shops were for. They were meant, like that salon atmosphere of a coffee shop still existed well into the well into the 90s you know you no know, before the rise of laptops and and starbucks and all that and i remember um after class we used to go to the coffee shop there'd be people of all ages there there used to be like poetry readings or theme nights and yeah that outdoor seating you meet your friends and you you know or you just go there and read and then end up um in a conversation with someone else and yeah coffee shops have not been that for a long time now uh coffee shops it, it's kind of weird the corporate world has become like an octopus with tentacles that has regimented and corporatized like our home lives our um dating lives like like people date like job interviews and screen on the phone like going through resumes of, of, of a sort the coffee shop is just a open what they call it open air workplace that's pretty much what the yeah. coffee shop uh, yeah. is now it, it's like the it's like an open plan office um that's an open plan office and it's it hasn't just sort of homogenized all of those things you know like you say a date can feel like a job interview they're aesthetically more similar as well like you know for work i, I travel a fair bit and oftentimes i'll be you know working in a coffee shop in thailand or china or europe um, or a big american city and they all look kind of the same you know that they have long blonde wood tables and Edison light bulbs and minimalist fonts. And you start yeah. to kind of forget where you are, you know, that they all just make up this sort of vaguely international airspace that could be anywhere. And that, and that exposed pipe shelving. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like plumbing pipes used as, as, um, as fixtures. Oh, I realized that so much when traveling, but, but you know what um, I hate to admit is I went through a phase where I guess it made me comfortable. Like, um, for example, I remember when I, you know, considered myself more uh, enlightened or whatever. And my whole thing was, oh, people who go to McDonald's, they don't experiment, you know, uh, they just to McDonald's anywhere and they know what the food is going to taste like. It has a work plan, you know, that, 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 yeah. that common, that, the same floor plan, you know, they had the common um, talking points that like a cultural snob, you know, would say. And I thought I was like more elevated because, you know, I ate at these, um, more cool, funky places or whatever. But I've got to say from traveling the world and those things, McDonald's and KFC and those franchise places actually have more diversification diversification around the world than your typical um, bourgeois bohemian, like hipster coffee shop or bar. Like you can go to McDonald's in India and they have like these uh, crazy curry burgers and, and you go to KFC in Japan, they have whatever, but those coffee shops, those bars are more homogenized than any fast food franchise. 
was like that. I don't know what you'd call them. Cultural <laughs> elite hangouts. And I don't care. Gastropubs, uh, high-end coffee shops, whatever. It's all the same thing. The stupid foam leaf in the yeah. top of the cappuccino, the mason jars, the Edison lighting, like you said. Yeah, sort of like a, a duck egg blue cup with a latte in it. It really, I mean, you're so right. It's just uncanny. Uh, how homogenous it is and how similar it is. It's almost it's almost eerie um, that it doesn't even have those little twists, those little nods to uh, kind of local flavor that the McDonald's does. Uh, I've never thought of it like that before. It's it's kind yeah. of giving me the creeps, you know. Yeah, it's it, it's, it's crazy. Like you know, uh, I always thought McDonald's is the uh, the American product of the ugly American, you know. But I, I swear, us supposedly more um, cultural uh, city dwellers are. Way, way worse as far as our comfort. I've sat in so many cafes or bars places where I'm like, if I couldn't see into the street, I would not know where I was right now. I could easily be in Brooklyn. It's funny you mentioned that, that, that it is um, Brooklyn and Williamsburg, especially. When I go there now, it feels like making this almost kind of pilgrimage because you're, you're going to see the template for what something looks like in Chiang Mai in 18 months, you know? Yeah, it's it's crazy. I was watching this movie called uh, Burning. It's a Korean movie, and they were sitting in places like that. They even had like, a speech about that. But yeah, I mean, like the wine the wine bar they were in looked just like um, the same things you see here, and they actually were made made it an explicit part of uh, the plot. But I think when it goes to your article, it makes it interesting. Is not only are these places like each other around the world, but within the city, everything's kind of getting um, homogenized because. People try to decorate their offices in a certain way that's kind of very hip and Brooklyn-y slash Portland-y, whatever. But then their homes are, you know, increasingly looking that way as well, like like people's apartments. It's like the divide is really like weird because my friends who work in those quote-unquote fun places like, you know, Etsy or one of those uh, places like Google, whatever, and they're encouraged to personalize and have certain types of desks and blonde wood is in the office and there's a bike rack in the office and you can bring your, your pets. And then you go home and there's a bike rack in their house. There's yeah. blonde wood everywhere. You know, so it's like there's a homogenization with across spaces in your um, milieu, but then from city to city, it's, it's, I mean, I don't even know where I'm going with this, but I just, I just wanted to rant, I guess. Well, yeah. I mean, how much do you think that contagion is kind of caused by social media that, that people just pick up these people have always copied trends um, out of fashion magazines and from TV and that kind of thing. But there's, there's something about the sort of the mimetic power of social media on Instagram and Pinterest and things like that, especially well, where you really can uh, recreate the look in a lot of detail. You know, you can even know what shop people bought something from. You know, that's really true because I have a Instagram that I just for, I guess you would call like a, like a Finsta because it's not like my personal Insta, but it's something that I just use shopping and design ideas and stuff like that. And I ended up not using it after a while because it got too depressing because like I was trying to uh, follow all these um, design design sites, right? For there was one about craft because I have a, I have a home office and it was like home office ideas, you know. Another one for um, fashion, then another one for like you know home design and plants and you know shoes and sneakers and restaurants and. When I was scrolling through this thing, you know, everything looked the same. That would take me a while to know which 
thing I was looking at any given time because there was this melding of everything. Like um, the design thing would have somebody in the picture dressed a certain way. And I wouldn't know right away, wait, is this about the clothes or the design? Is this a home office? Is this a living room? Is this a workplace? Like, like what is this? Um, Is this a restaurant? Oh no, it's not a restaurant. This is actually somebody's home office. And that, that blur is really new. You know, those environments were unmistakable not that long ago. Um, do you think that with this, this kind of ironing out and ironing out of eccentricities and, and other ways of living, do you think that America in general and, and New York City in particular still has a recognisable counterculture? Does it have a, a sort of a way of, of dropping out? Does it have a way of, of living a bohemian lifestyle that it used to? I don't think it has even a culture period. I don't think it even has a real corporate culture that's easy to spot anymore because everything has an identity crisis. So it's like the workplace is trying to become a counterculture, you know, like. Yeah. I was at and, and it's weird because I'll give an example. And a friend that worked at you know one of those cool places. Lots of Taco Tuesdays, lots of theme Thursdays. You could bring you know your friends to work on Thursday to join in the um, the theme day. So you know like he would always invite different ones of us down and open their plan and lots of and bookshelves where people put their their books by their by their desk and the boss is part of the open air plan and there's bike racks and dogs and all this stuff and then. When they went public, you know, now they have a quarterly. The whole goal is to get big enough to get bought or grow public. You know, they go public and now they're still trying to act like they're the same people. But now they have a quarterly report and now they have um, shareholders to be responsible to. And he was talking about how they still had the trappings of that thing, but there was something that felt different. And um, then started things that, you know, anyone who's worked in a corporate place has heard before, like whispers and stuff. And someone says, you know, I'm just letting you know there's going to be layoffs uh, on Friday. You know, you're safe, but don't tell anybody. Uh, You know, a lot of people aren't going to be here. We have to do like like cuts and layoffs. And then like people keep worrying when the next round, I made this round, but when's the next round, the layoffs going to come. You know, lots of whispers, lots of... um, notes passed um yeah and then you've got to go on on friday afternoon and like listen to that guy playing a ukulele even though you know he's going to be laid off yeah exactly exactly and and then after the layoff next taco tuesday you got to act like you know morale isn't shot on top of everything else so, so, so you gotta see your friend playing the ukulele or riding the unicycle to his cubicle <laughs> you know while, while uh you know he's gonna be laid off after he gets laid off you gotta show up on like on m- m- uh, monday and look at his empty space there you know and then they reorganize the seating to put everybody closer you know to each other and then taco tuesday you gotta act like it's normal again while dreading uh when's the next one gonna come so he even said you know what i want to just go back to a regular place uh at least i know what it is yes i don't get i don't get lulled into this false sense of security so you know he went to another job after he didn't wait to see if he was gonna get laid off he just went to a traditional glass and steel office and he's like it's cold it's sterile but at least i know what it is yeah and and you don't have to worry about like watering the guy's succulents after he gets laid off yeah, exa- yeah, exactly, exactly. But but he was starting to make it his home. He started thinking it was his family. He was falling for the company line, hook, line, and sinker, you know? But it was the same thing in disguise at the end of the day. It's weird as well that the the dropout, uh, like you say, this, this blurring means that it happens at 
at both ends. So I guess one of the ways that people drop out now is by getting involved in stuff like van life. And when that happens and they're successful enough on social media, it's like they have an IPO and a marketing strategy. And, you know, they're doing things like making boutique coffee brands and startups and advertising them on their social media. You know, it's not like they're sort of modeling an alternative to living in the capitalist economy. They're just having a kind of micro capitalist economy in the back of a van. Yeah, it's true. Or, or like crafting beer out of the garage or in the van or or we're, we're like perpetually traveling. We're doing that travel life, but use our YouTube and the shirts that we're selling and all this stuff. I mean, podcasting's that to a degree uh, where it's like you're running this micro this micro enterprise that you have to plug and do all this stuff for i mean i mean i guess it's just a neoliberalization of everything where your self your very self becomes corporatized and a brand yeah and and kind of uh your personality in some ways becomes an exercise in in brand management and media management um and it's difficult sometimes to do aspects of that without feeling like they're affectations and so, something else too is uh, the parasociality of it. Like one of the realizations I've made from um, doing this, right, is I had this idea of meritocracy and gatekeepers and whatever, and that if you are just the brightest person with um, who's do, too good to ignore, that's pretty much what what matters in a way that the uh, office politics and the credentialism of uh, the corporate world don't allow you. But what I've started to realize is much like personality plays a, a much bigger role in the in the office and like, you no know, politics plays a much bigger role in the office than people think. Um, everything is parasociality, which is like um, people don't really on average tune into you or whatever because you're particularly funny or particularly smart or informative they tune into you because uh they want a friend a lot of time but but they want a smart friend or a funny friend that's really what you're selling like like i say sometimes like uh i feel like a friend institute like you know (laughs) yeah it's like that uh that japanese phenomenon where you can hire a friend but all all people have to do is just download a conversation where they listen to you talk yeah exactly so it's called it's almost like there's a certain responsibility to uh, maintain that um, illusion of illusion of long lost friendship that um, I don't really mind sometimes, but sometimes you know you just don't really want to um, do that. Like you know, but I re- I realize if you don't do that, like if people want facts, they can like read a book. Yes, you know. Yes, or or they can watch a lecture on uh, Khan Academy, or whatever. So it's like, what incentive do they really have to listen to you? And it really becomes the parasociality. And I've started to realize, even though to a degree I'm a pretty private person, that's just what the game is. And I feel like that parasociality is even affecting the workplace where the office wants to be your friend in a way that they never wanted to be before. And that's what was kind of going on with my friends, cool tech company and stuff, where like the boss wants, to, the boss feels like it's not enough to be a boss. I've got to be the cool boss. It has to be the cool <laughs> workplace, you know, but it's 
a very corporatized uh, cool. It's very, like, I feel like the division of things was better because your work was just cold, sterile work. And then your bar, your coffee shop was just bohemians and people, you know, playing banjos and reading reading poems on stage. Yeah. Now I feel like everything is this blurred, half corporate, half fake parasocial thing, whether it's work, whether it's the co-working space, whether, like, there's just these fake regimented team building exercises and everything. I feel like even people's personal lives have become that. It's it's worse to be fired by your friend, right? Mm. It's 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 better to be fired by your boss than Ex- yeah. someone who's kind of doing it with their arm around your shoulders in a lot of ways. It's so true. It's so true. Uh, and I think that's kind of what made the sense of betrayal like extra, um, you know, bad for my friend. But thing that, you know, one person was saying was, hey, you know, it wasn't always like this. It just happened because they went public. But then, you know, my friend made a good point. They were always planning to go public. So in a sense, this was always built into the model. So they were like lying from the beginning. It's kind of like somebody's <laughs> um, courting you and, you know, dating. But when it's time to get married, you know, um, you're the good time guy or the good time girl. But when it's time to get married, they're going to say marry somebody from their own culture or country or own social class, you know. And then you can't really tell that person that's the way to feel better. Well, no, but the good times with you were real. You know, it just um, now this is like the, like the real world. You know, it doesn't make you feel any better. It just makes you feel like even more betrayed. And I feel like that's what my friend was saying. He's like, this is what being a publicly traded company with quarterly reports means. So if they were always angling to become this, on some level, they knew they couldn't stay uh, cool. So it's they still bear the brunt of the blame for uh, what it became because they should have been honest from the beginning. Yeah, and, and they possibly weren't honest with them with themselves. Um, That's fair. That, that book, um, Uncanny Valley by uh, Anna Weiner, that really captures that dynamic where they're desperately still trying to pretend that they're cool uh, and not like other corporations. And that just makes them sort of worse corporations in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. They, they never succeed at really being cool because sooner or later they have to become a dick, but they never um, get to be. I mean, it makes sense because if you look at a lot of tech companies that tend to not be very well run, they get kind of lucky in the fact that people just lose all their sense when it comes to investing and they'll they'll like pay for a stock that's at 90 times earning if it's uh has that sexy tech company veneer to it but yeah a lot of times the fundamentals actually usually um suck and i think it's what you said they're not really good at being companies just as much as they're not good at being social spaces before we before we're talking i was thinking about because you know we're We've been planning to talk for a while and I was thinking about all the stuff that has, has changed. And I, I looked at this tweet and it was from Axe Body Spray. And one of the insurrectionists, revolutionaries, whatever you want to call them, um, who just stormed uh, the Capitol building, had left behind a can of, of Axe Body Spray. <laughs> and, this, and this tweet was from, you know, it's all personified. It's Axe Body Spray coming out and, and condemning uh, this attempted coup. Oh my God. So is that part of it as well, where what happens when these kind of cool companies or maybe in the Axe Body Spray case, not very cool kind of uh, company, don't just try and be your friend, but be your kind of comrade, you know, that when they become political entities. That's, that's a good point. And some people eat it up. We want, we want something weird, right? I have a friend who is a very good uh, shit poster. 
he just shit posts all day and it's like a art like he has characters he has a following and he has that weird like um disconnected ironic um surrealist type of online humor he has a very good online voice for a spell he worked for a big company right so i used to always think i used to always think that the social media person at places was some like square intern or something or some old dude trying to be cool but a lot of times they're like secretly like well-known shit posters that you know got hired to be the social media manager <laughs> so he has this kind of irreverent shit posting persona but like i don't want to blow up his spot but you know he's also the social media person for like an old major toy company but the posts were still good but something about seeing uh a company affecting that voice just felt kind of dirty and then yeah. it almost felt dirtier knowing that somehow knowing that a real shit poster was doing it almost made it dirtier than thinking that it was just some like uh 40 year old guy uh studying tweets and trying to uh trying to emulate it yeah yeah it, it's, it's like, like nothing no. sacred there's no there's no boundaries or spaces for anything anymore everything's fair game yeah or or it's like that kind of old phenomenon where or not so old phenomenon where you know novelists and and musicians and those sorts of people would go and work in advertising. And there's this continuity between uh, their creative work to uh, try and make you feel something and their creative work to try and make you feel that you should buy something. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, you're talking about how the internet changes everything, right? One thing I think has really changed everything with the internet is a way that people used to kind of deal with this hypocrisy is I remember a big thing that would happen is big stars here, especially ones who consider themselves like auteurs, you know what I mean? Like Robert De Niro and people who, I mean, they would do blockbusters for the most part. They were known for like doing academy winning work. They would go to Japan and just yes. chill to their heart's content. And you knew those commercials would never make their way here. Once in a while, 2020 would do a coverage like, you won't believe, that's the first time I heard about this, 2020 had a story, you won't believe the secret market in Japan for our big stars to shill everything from soda to whatever. But, you know, they have a commercial, they put a compilation of those so they have a special like that. They put a compilation of those commercials, but then you wouldn't see them again for years. But now with YouTube, with international TV, with memes, with social media, Leonardo DiCaprio goes to Japan and um, shills for cola. It's going to pop up here in an instant. Or if he does, like a, or does a perfume ad, it's going to pop up here in an instant. And what I've seen that happen is instead of that killing that um, secret uh, life or that secret side, it's almost kind of legitimized it in terms of, well, if there's no point in going to Japan to do that kind of shilling anymore, if you can't hide it anywhere, then we might as well just import that here. So now you see like uh, George Clooney and Danny DeVito doing ads for Nespresso and you have stars hocking everything here and now, A-list stars in a way you've never seen before. I think that's another example of this... um, homogenization of everything yeah and and commodification there's there's not sort of the idea so much that this will degrade the integrity of you as an artist it's just that that is show business now yes and the exposure of it all instead of shaming people um out of it you know it's just kind of legitimize it like wow you know what it's like i would say this week man with wwf now wwe said that for the longest time they were so scared of it coming out that wrestling was fake because they said once people found out that it was fake and what it really was, 
everybody would lose interest. Like, even though most people suspected or, or savvier people knew, there was a big chunk of normies uh, who thought it was real and there was this big steroid trial the big steroid trial that's a talk under oath and it was covered by the news and it came out how scripted everything was how um basic man used to even hide owning the company he just act like a regular announcer like that's how much level of artifice there was to it um and he said that what really shocked them was once it came out that it was fake they actually got more popular what started happening was now they were unconstrained. They were free to yeah. be as shameless and fake as they wanted because uh, it actually freed them. So then wrestling just became like uh, telenovelas for men. And 100%. I think that's kind of what happened with the commodification of everything. Like the internet, the transparency, the, te- the technological uh, things, the social media has, has exposed so much of the um, corporatization, capitalization of our lives that it's actually kind of given us license to lean into it more. Yeah, that that there's this just understanding that life has a mercantile aspect and you can't pretend that it doesn't and to have that sort of desire just be expressed openly, you know, that desire for money. Um, it, it's almost like when people start doing an ad, now the attitude is not that they've sold out, it's that they've made it. Oh, yeah. You know, um, there's, there's a very popular clip that I always like to um, play. Let me, let, me see if I could, let me see if I could find it. Um, hold on a second. It's people who have watched our live streams and heard our shows probably sick of this clip, but I really love I really love this clip. So for those of you who have heard this, I'm sorry. I'm gonna play it again. But but check check this out. There was this um thing called a frontline PBS. It was called Generation Like. It first came out in the 2014. It was talking about the early rise of influencers. It's kind of weird how old you think this stuff is, but it's really it's really not. Like the smartphone is not really as old as I remember it being and and modern social media like uh the kind we have now where it's like just one giant open chat room is it's all like pretty new, but yeah, tell, yeah. tell me if you can tell me if you can hear this. They're talking to these um I guess at the time, I guess they're millennials, but at the time they were like young millennials cuz it's like um at this point 7 years ago. Tell me if you can hear this. Hold on. I do a lot of like brands. Is there um Yeah, I can yeah, hear that. It's good. It's good. You hear it? Okay, cool. Yeah. So uh this is as loud as it goes. I hope it's hope it's loud enough. But yeah, so just listen. Integrations, uh whenever it works, but I try to keep it minimal. Yeah, that's a cool ranch. This guy's an influencer called Tyler. He's still popular today, but this is when he first started and he's talking about how he gets paid to eat Taco Bell and do stuff in his YouTube videos. And he tries to keep it like uh natural and integrated. But uh, yeah, just just keep listening because they're gonna switch from this to a bunch of high school kids who are trying to be the next crop of influencers. That's the best. So how did you feel like that content with the brand played out with your your twelve year old? Surprisingly, they can always tell if a YouTuber is like pushing something. Mm-hmm. So I try to keep it transparent and honest because they know it's my job and they know that I have to pay bills. They get that, so it's all good. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is the future of the Tyler Oakley brand? World domination um, <laughs> with brand deals. My plan for the future is world domination, um, but in my own, in by my own rules, which is the coolest part, because it's like I am doing what I love, and I feel like a lot of opportunities are there if I want to work for them. 
Catching Fire is on Audible. So audible.com slash Tyler McClay, you get your first book free. Selling out is not selling out anymore. That, that sort of isn't the scary part. part. This is the scary part that comes comes right after. Believe it or not, that wasn't the scary part. Right now is going to be a scary part. what I love. And I feel like a lot of opportunities are there if I want to work for them. Catching Fire is on Audible. So audible.com slash Tyler McClay, you get your first book free. Selling out is not selling out anymore. It's sort of getting the brass ring. It's like, if you get Taco Bell to sponsor your stuff, it's like, hey, look, I'm important enough that Taco Bell realizes you're an important audience to reach. So yeah, let's all geek out about Taco Bell for a video. I don't care. We just bump into John Mayer because who else would you bump into at a Taco Bell party? And he was so I say now, like selling out doesn't even exist as a term. I don't hear young people talking about selling out. I don't even, I'm not sure they even know what it means. Selling out. Can you define that? <laughs> so they're actually talking to the young influencers now and they're asking them what does selling out mean? These kids literally don't know what the term, they never actually, they literally never heard the term. So so listen, listen to these answers. <laughs> well, selling out means like, it could mean different things. I guess, I don't know, I think first of like a concert that's like totally sold out, like no tickets left. That's probably not what you meant though. <laughs> I don't really know what that means. You could sell out like an album or you could like sell out like, like you're a sellout, like you're you're nowhere in life. You're never gonna get back on top. Everyone. Yeah. So I mean, I, I thought that was scary. That the term has been decommissioned. What's that? The term selling out has been decommissioned. Oh yes, exactly. That's a great. That's a great way. Great way to put it. And I feel like you know I play that clip a lot, but I think it's so relevant to a lot of things that it doesn't seem relevant to. I think it plays into. Um, everything like the blurring of everything that you talk about in this in this article that um like what do you think covid has done as far as speeding it along or yeah perverting I, its path I, w I was just thinking that there's that clip reminded me of uh, a story i did years ago which was about some of these influences and what people called uh, cockroach bait marketing and that kind of stuff that's and a I remember, yeah, uh, the idea is like, you know, the, the cockroach gets stuck and then it attracts its mates or it, it takes the poison back to the nest. I can't remember which, neither is good. But <laughs> uh, I met this, this girl, uh, this woman, when I was doing this piece and she had been on a date with a guy and the guy arrived, I can't remember the brand, but uh, he picked her up in this car, which was covered in like T-Mobile ads. And um, she said, oh, you know, this is an unusual car. What's the story with the car? And um, he said, well, I get to drive it as long as I tell people about the benefits of T-Mobile. Wow. And there was a long pause and she said, like you're about to do now. <laughs> and there was an even longer pause. And then he said, well, it is a great sell plan. <laughs> well, well, let me ask you this. <laughs> do they have any way of knowing if he yeah. talks it I, up? I, I was thinking exactly the same thing. They, they've got no way of knowing. He, he's just It's just an honor system whether he reports it or not. He's presumably mm -hmm. trying to sleep with this woman. And the good graces of T-Mobile are more important to him than sex. Yeah, oh my god and i also wonder if there's some kind of commission if someone that he talks to signs it up and then that's how he kind of gets so on top of getting the car maybe he gets some kind of commission so maybe he's like um sex or commission yeah or just just sort of thinking like it would all be fine and and she would think it was great or something and she would understand it yeah 
Yeah, that she would think it was cool. And plus, um, because people, because like we talked about with the office and the job being your friend, he probably thinks of that job as doing him a favor. Like, oh, this is my pal that lets me use their car just in exchange of uh, filling it with gas. Or in this case, um, talking up their cell plan. You know, like that sense of loyalty probably helps propel him in that honor system as well. Like that, that blurred line between boss and uh, cool friend, you know, th- that the cool boss. Yeah, I, I've read before that um, if you want to bribe someone um, to get a result, it's better to use small or medium sized bribes than big bribes. That, that they engender more loyalty if it's more in the realm of something that a friend would do for you than just a big whack of cash. Ah, uh, that makes sense. Especially if you're trying to engender a long-term relationship and not just a um, one-time thing. If you want like a series of favors, that makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that it's more incremental, and and people in the meantime create excuses for why they took it, and it's easier to take something small or uh, you know where it's it's less kind of in your face what it's for. It's probably easier to write. Yeah, it's easier to rationalize that it's that it's not it's not a bribe. Yeah, it's like oh well, it's it's just X. You know, it's just a dinner. It's just a bottle of wine. Whatever. Uh, you talk in this article about the rash of think pieces about um, the switch to home based work and how they tend to strike an optimistic um, note. So, what has your findings been as far as the optimism of these pieces or the reasons they're optimistic? And do you think that the reasons for optimism are well founded, but just not recognizing the negative aspects as well or do you think even the reasons that they think that they're optimistic aren't real like what's your kind of take on the takes you've been seeing yeah see i mean when this when this piece first came out a few people said oh why are you kind of shitting on remote work it's been great for me it means i get to spend more time with my family i never want to go back to the office etc um and i i didn't want to shit on remote work i wanted to say that remote work does have benefits that they have been unevenly distributed and that if the past is any guide all of those benefits that we do think will accrue like spending more time with people that we care about or more time on hobbies or having more flexibility around work um, have to be accrued very very carefully because all sorts of things in the past which should have created those things really didn't Um, and so being on guard especially against aspects like the surveillance that at-home work entails increasingly, where they're just going to try and wring every product, every drop of productivity out of out of the people who are not in the office, um, is something to approach with caution. One thing that's happened for me is I physically spend more time around my wife, but because between podcasting and day work, actually working more. And into the night, you know, because um, I tend to work later because I know I can, you know, I can do errands and stuff during the day. That's harder doing it in an office. And then it blends right into like podcasting and stuff. It's it's kind of weird where before when I would come home from work, it would be like work is largely over. We spend less hours together, but it's more like together time. Whereas now we're physically around each other the whole day, but it feels less... Um, connected but on top of that this is what's really interesting the work feels weird because there's no like separation like it's hard to get into a flow state when you have like a roommate or a wife who's floating in and out you know like it's kind of like um how it's hard it's extra difficult to work to work out at home in the same living room that you use to binge watch um 
you know, Stranger Things than to go to a dedicated space for that. Like, like if you go to a gym, you're not going to sit around and BS for like, you know, three hours because you, you have to you have to go. So you go into that space for working out. Bam, bam, bam. You work out. You know, then if you're home, like you might do a couple. If you're working out at home, you might do a couple of sets. Then some. Uh, your wife comes into the room and asks you if you can help her with something or you start watching something on TV or a phone call comes. Like I feel that it's unless you're very regimented i don't know maybe some people are i think it's kind of an illusion where the work is not really getting its full attention but yeah the people aren't getting a full attention either it's just this nebulous zone where everything bleeds into each other a few people made the comment or the joke on on social media that it doesn't feel like working from home it feels like living at work um and these places you know an office a gym home they're also to some extent um conditioning environments and when you have a, a conditioning environment trying to do all of this stuff at once uh often it doesn't do it very well something very ironic that i was wishing for was uh there's a co-working space around the corner for me. Uh, and I doubt it's open now. Like, it's, I'm sure it's closed with the pandemic. But I'm out of the office, at home, and I was seriously considering if that co-working space was open and it felt safe, I would get a membership there. <laughs> so my working from home, I would end up, uh, ideally, walking around the corner every day from like, you know, 9 to 5 or 10 to 6 or something and just co-working out of there and then just coming home and like like watching TV. So it's kind of like I was surprised by like how much I wanted to a space dedicated to work and not a home office because home office is still not the same. Someone can just walk in anytime, whatever. And I do it to my wife too. Like, you know, I'll get bored and walk over there and and snap her out of her flow flow state. So yeah, I mean, I mean, you talk about that here about there's a lot of benefits to um, there's a lot of benefits to a workplace that people kind of have forgotten about or downplayed. Yeah, th- there's also that um, that 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 kind of flow state and that kind of focus and that kind of privacy um, has not been a feature of many people's work offices quite a while now i mean the the days for most people of the of the corner office are kind of gone and instead they are in an open plan office with headphones on trying to get work done trying to create that um that privacy orally which doesn't work very well yeah actually that's a good point so it's like you can't even really get it at work anymore but you know, at least that simulation of the headphones and the walls of a cubicle i guess help a little bit but like you said even the cubicle walls are going down. Now you just have a giant um, open plan. It's crazy. Like, I don't, I don't know where you can go to get... There's no place you can really go for a lot of people to get a true home, you know, that's separated from work. And there's no place you can go at work to work where you're truly private either. So it's kind of like um, people, I think, probably feel simultaneously alienated, but at the same time exposed all the time. One you know, thing... Like, like, Yeah, I'm not sure if you've noticed this. Uh, I've noticed partly because of my work, you know, some of the way that I do my job is by having conversations with strangers, by striking up conversations with strangers. Because, uh, you know, I might be at an event, at a rally, at a debate or a polling booth or whatever, just trying to get a sense of what people are thinking or just because, you know, it's a useful way to glean information and and I enjoy it too. Um, I think it has become noticeably more difficult to have conversations with strangers in, say, the last five years. 
It just doesn't really happen spontaneously anymore. And if you try and make it happen, people think that you're strange. I was you anticipating my question. I was going to ask you, do you find that people regard you with suspicion? Because I feel that sometimes. Like, it takes a couple of minutes to see that look fade away from their eyes. Like, that you think you're going to sell them something like multi-level yeah. marketing or you're a creep or something is... You know, like eventually, like they kind of, but but you want to know even stranger about this, right? This was even stranger to me now. I get it to a degree in coffee houses and coffee shops and bookstores because those places have been, been becoming more sterile for a while. But now I notice even in bars, sometimes yeah. people, uh, something where people aren't even on a laptop or doing anything, like people will be in a bar, but they make the phone into their new laptop or the new thing and they'll be working on something on their phone even if what they're working on is swiping left and right on bumble or tinder like that's now their new their new work like okay i've been in front of a screen all day like you know clicking documents and and reading things and writing up stuff and writing letters now i'm gonna go after work to the wine bar get a glass of wine sit down and now it's time for for my night job which is um uh, swiping i'm gonna swipe and i'm gonna catch up on social media and I'm going to like, um, you know, maybe binge watch YouTube clips that people are sending me all day. So now it's like that's their open air workspace, the the bar. And if you, you know, they'll turn down real contact or small talk to be on the phone uh, swiping strangers. It's, it's just I know it's, it's very different than when I used to go to bars when I was younger. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess when we think about that um we're probably the last to just hit the tail end of that generation where you'd still have that experience. And if you think about the reasons why people did speak to strangers, it was to have an entertaining conversation, to make a friend with a common interest, uh, to, to laugh at jokes and maybe to hook up with someone. And now um, talking to a stranger is not a very efficient way of doing any of those things. So I guess it makes sense that people think instead, oh, well, this might be a bit of a waste of my time. Yeah, and I think people now are so used to curating and managing a digital persona that it gets hard for them to really work a real one. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's like, this is something like almost strange about it. It's like, well, if we were online, I could just look at your whole profile and figure out if I want to talk to you right away. You know, I can just uh, do my due diligence on you and look at your photos and your social media. But this just seems very inefficient. We're going to have, to have a conversation, you know, have, like, do, do we really want to do this? Have you been to one of those events where a whole lot of influencers, especially Twitter type influencers get together yes yes they're horrible they're interesting i'm oh, sorry go on what was that like what what was the one you went to like there's there's been a couple I'll, I'll give you some examples without putting people on blast so i'm gonna like change little details but i was invited to one right and i went to it and a lot of um new york media people you know um go to it and i was invited to it so i went I didn't understand what it was because I was kind of new to podcasting. I kind of stumbled into um, like this type of alternative media by dumb luck. So I didn't really understand like the world or the people. So I went, I met some different people and then I would talk and there would just be this kind of aloofness or politeness. And then somebody would be like, oh, you know, he's Ricky Rawls on Twitter. Goes, oh, yeah, you know, I really like your account. It's funny. First of all, I'd be surprised that they read it, but it was like, there was like a, a switch 
as in, okay, I get that he's uh, has this kind of personality or he's worth talking to. He has interesting thoughts. But it was like they could have just talked to me and figured out that I had interesting thoughts. But it was kind of like the time it would have taken to figure that out. They could have been talking to someone else. Like, I don't know. I think another problem is that, too, a lot of people who use the Internet a lot tend to be introverts anyway. Yeah. That's the other thing. So that kind of is uh, a, selection, yeah. a selection or a sample bias in and of itself. So maybe even without the internet, these people were just not ever great outgoing conversationalists. I think that might be part of it too. But the shorthand of, I think when you're talking to you, I think even in their mind, they're thinking, I wish I was talking to someone whose Twitter handle I knew. So I just know right away what to talk to them about or what. Because that's the other thing too. People just know what to talk to you about automatically because they, they talk to you about things they've seen you tweet about, which is like nice and all, but maybe something more organic would come up if you didn't have this preconception of me. Yeah, it, it's almost like they have this prepackaged version of your identity, which is free floating and separate from your body, like your corporeal presence. And they have to have a moment where they put the two of them together. Yeah, yeah they put the two of them together, but also the thought of having to dig to um, excavate your, your inner world and, you know, connect with you on some level, it just feels, and again, this is like, I think that workplace... <laughs> mindset of efficiency like you know it's just this just feels inefficient this feels very inefficient <laughs> even though the the irony of work is that the efficiency itself is very inefficient because you're talking about in the article uh work now has uh something like 122 um emails a day and a whole bunch of talk about meetings and anyone who's worked in a corporation knows that all those emails and all those meetings do not make you i see 121 work-related emails per day, attend meetings 12 hours a week. And as someone who, I'm someone, maybe everyone's not like this, when I work in corporations, I feel like I'm the weirdo because I need flow, I need flow state. I need to be able to get a couple of hours uninterrupted and get a flow state um, for certain types of projects. You know, if it's like uh, a laundry list of checklists, you know, I can do stuff like that with 15 minutes nuggets of time here and there. But if I have to like write a document or, or prepare a report, I'm the kind of person I need time to ramp up. I need to get a flow state, you know, and then um, with like maybe a five minute coffee break here and there. But I feel that's the same type of, like, I call it like inefficient efficiency. Like, cause yeah. supposedly these people monitor the hell out of you and want to squeeze every mouse click and keyboard or keystroke out of you. So they're efficient on the micro level, but on the macro level, just the very structure of the workplace, not made to optimize, you know, the creative impulse. And I feel that same inefficient efficiency is what you find in the social world of um, influencers and people who are too plugged into the internet. What I mean by that is when he's, when this person is talking to me and feeling like having a from the ground up conversation of like, where are you from? What do you do? Where do you live? What are your hobbies? That thing that seems inefficient to them, one good conversation can probably of engaged, like flowing conversation, immersive, connective would probably take less time than you reading my Twitter account for years. Yeah, you know, which like, is a which is a curated uh, curated persona anyway. Yeah, and and you might never even meet me. So if if you think of all the hours on Twitter you spend reading strangers, you may never even meet. You know, it's actually probably way less efficient than this single two hour conversation we might have at a bar. 
There is some some kind of symmetry, isn't there, between these these events? I've been to them too, where you have all these uh, influencers who are you know gregarious and and funny uh, in real life and quick. Uh, sorry, on the on the internet, and then in real life, it's like a social anxiety support group. You know, these people can barely talk. Um, but we just something else that happens. They can talk if you talk about what happened on the internet. Then they light yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah, and and they're talking to each other on their phone. Yeah, um, the same way that in the in the meeting they are on their laptops. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. So so it's like when someone talks about man, do you see what happened on the internet an hour ago? Or someone says right now, someone says, "Oh my God, someone just tweeted this," and it's like, "Oh, are we really going to do this? We're going to talk about <laughs> we're going to be in person and all look at our phones to see what someone just tweeted." Like, yeah, but it's it's a weird yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing. But I think like I want to make the connection to your article and work like more explicit because it is connected. But I feel like we're not making it explicit enough. But these things I feel like are are everywhere because same thing like like. With the people that you work with, you're meant to kind of try to create some kind of friendship ties with them. And you guys leave and go someplace after work. And a lot of times you're just talking about the boss or work or things that you um, don't really like or do like about the job. It's it's the work life balance is weird now. And I really think it was already broken. And I don't know, like it was very porous. The boundaries is very broken. And I had like a weird feeling about this work at home thing. And most of my friends were very optimistic. Most of the pieces I was reading were optimistic. And I was very reassured by your article because um, it mirrors a lot of my concerns. But here is the irony. Even though I really agree with your article, I still find a trepidation about having to go back to work. Yeah, why is that? I don't know. I, am I the only one? Have you spoken to anyone else who said the same thing? Who yeah, does, I mean, so again, there's this, there's this whole range of traditionally one of the reasons that prevented people from going to remote work full time. Like if we go sort of maybe 10 years ago, remote work had a lot of churn. You know, it was, it was always there as a percentage of the of full-time employees. But the number of people who did it for, you know, longer than a year at a time was even lower. And one of the most commonly cited reasons by those people was loneliness, that they would kind of find themselves by themselves pretty much all the time, apart from, you know, when they would see their, their partners or other people in their house. And also they found that not being physically present meant that they were overlooked for promotions or underpaid or lost power in the workplace, lost influence um, because they weren't that physical presence. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.